At City Light, we believe that the Bible is God's word, and when it is taught faithfully, God can speak to us through it. So today we're going to be hearing from 1 John chapter 4. It should come up on the screen behind me, uh, verses 7 to 12. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another... God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is the word of the Lord. Hey everyone, just want to extend my welcome uh, to Felicity. It's just so great to see you all here. Um, it's been a few great weeks of church. Every week somehow, Jez is predicting that the weather's going to be great on a Sunday and every week it is, so hopefully we'll keep that going for our final week of this series next week, but Hopefully you've been enjoying, if you've been along any of the last couple of weeks, um, digging into some really big questions, wrestling with some ideas, um, which aren't always particularly straightforward, aren't always um, completely clear in terms of where they land, but um, are questions that are really important to our lives and to making sense of life and living life to the full. And so we're going to jump into, uh, in a short while, the verses that Felicity just read to us as we explore this question of um, where do we find true connection? Um, before we do that, I'm just going to pray. So if you're someone who prays, um, you can pray along with me now. Just, just ask that God to be with us in this time. Let's pray. <coughs> Heavenly Father, we just thank you that uh, you're with us, that regardless of how we might feel in this moment, regardless of how close you feel to us, that you are in fact there and that you are intimately concerned with each and every single person in this room. There are things that you're wanting to do in us and to change in us and to make known to us. And so we just ask that you would just be able to help us think, to listen, to to meditate on your words, um, that we might have a deeper understanding of your love and your goodness. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. (coughs) I might be doing that a few times today. But um, Scorsese's... 1970s masterpiece, Taxi Driver, follows the story of uh, the Vietnam vet, Travis Bickle, as he drives his taxi through the busy streets of New York City. And as night after night he picks up gangsters and prostitutes and, and just people from all different walks, he muses on the, on the corruption and the degeneration he sees around him and on the increasing isolation that he feels within himself. And the the film is really an exploration of the apparent irony that a person can live in the busiest city on earth in a job that would have them meet dozens of people every single day and still feel incredibly lonely. And as he drives around the city, we hear Travis's thoughts as he muses in his diary as he says, Loneliness has followed me my whole life, everywhere, in bars, in cars, sidewalks, stores, everywhere. There's no escape. I'm God's lonely man. 
And this theme of loneliness is what the screenwriter Paul Schrader wanted to unpack as he wrote this story. At the top of his script, he he wrote a quote from the essayist Thomas Wolfe, who says, The whole conviction of my life now rests upon the belief that loneliness, far from being a rare and curious phenomenon, is the central and inevitable fact of human existence. Now, the irony is that in the film, Travis, who's musing on his own loneliness, feels it to be the case that his loneliness is what makes him special. It's what makes him unique and different from everyone else, that he feels this particular, this curse of loneliness, which ultimately drives him into cynicism and violence. Whereas what Thomas Wolfe is saying in his essay is, no, loneliness isn't for the few. It's not something that a, a small scattering of people have to come to grips with. It's for everyone. And perhaps this is more true now than ever. If you Google the phrase loneliness epidemic, you'll find just pages and pages and pages of articles, essays, websites, videos, highlighting the fact that loneliness is skyrocketing across the Western world. And it's a hard thing to completely quantify, but people point to the fact that that people are living more and more in single-person households, that participation in community organisations is at an all-time low, that more and more people are self-identifying as lonely, In the 70s, people were surveyed on the number of people they had in their life that they could just be open with and share anything with. And the most common answer then was three. But the same survey done in the last few years showed that the most common answer now is none. And you might think that calling loneliness an epidemic is extreme. But the former Surgeon General of the United States, um, Vivek Murthy, who since retiring from his role as Surgeon General has written extensively on loneliness says, during my years caring for patients, the most common pathology I saw was not heart disease or diabetes, it was loneliness. And loneliness is an underlying factor that, is, that contributes to a whole bunch of conditions that are for the first time seeing life expectancy in some Western cultures start to decline. Things like suicide, drug overdose, liver problems, heart disease, often have loneliness and isolation as a contributing factor. But for many people, and probably many people in this room, loneliness isn't just this thing that's kind of happening off there in the world somewhere. Loneliness is something we experience personally. And to be blunt, loneliness is one of the worst things we can feel. It's a terrible feeling. And the way I'm defining loneliness isn't just kind of being physically alone, but it's lacking in real meaningful connection with other people. Because it's possible to live alone and still maintain a a web of really um, rich and deep relationships in which you're known and loved. But by the same token, it's possible to be surrounded by people, having a whole bunch of friends, and to still have that deep feeling that no one really knows me and no one really cares. And loneliness can be indiscriminate like that. Often we might tend to kind of associate even loneliness with with singleness and and we think of it through the kind of romantic relationship kind of web, but but even being married doesn't necessarily spare you from loneliness. In fact, I think there's a unique loneliness that lots of married people feel where you can't even say that you're feeling lonely because that would kind of make out like your partner is somehow failing you. But still, deep down, you feel like you're carrying some huge weight on your own. And that feeling of sitting by yourself and feeling that there's no one that you can be open with, no one who's truly walking beside you through life, nobody who knows your deepest thoughts or feelings, 
is a, it's a really hard thing to experience. It often strikes alongside things like grief or depression, but sometimes it just hits us when we're sitting in our cars in traffic or when we're lying in bed at night. And I can honestly say some of the, the, the times in my life I felt the most loneliest have been some of the most memorably painful points in my life. And so I think this is the reason why in our culture we are so desperately searching for connection. The fear of loneliness, I think, is one of the things that has led apps like Tinder to have exploded across the Western world, even though it's not clear that Tinder has actually done anything to stem this loneliness crisis. It's why often when we find ourselves in our own, in a doctor's waiting room or just waiting for a bus or whatever it is, we, we feel the need to scour Snapchat and Instagram, Facebook for some semblance of connection. Loneliness is everywhere. So the question that that reality raises is, where is this loneliness coming from? Why do we all have this deep loneliness that just comes up from time to time through our life? And there's a whole bunch of kind of obvious answers that people tend to kind of go to and, and point out as what some of the things that could be contributing to this. Often it's the tech companies that caught the biggest beating in this area. The fact that we spend so much time on Netflix now, the fact that everyone has got these phones which are just built to be addictive that we can't stop staring at, the fact that even though social media has the word social in it, it turns out that comparing yourself to people on Instagram or hearing other people's opinions on Twitter or scrolling through videos on Facebook doesn't actually make you end up feeling particularly known or loved. In fact, social media has been shown to lead to things like social anxiety and tribalism and isolation even more. That's one factor. Another thing people point to is the fact that we live in a hyper-individualistic culture where we're told that you can find the real you and who you are meant to be, not by looking to your community around you, but by looking to yourself. And so your biggest priority is to look after yourself. You, you deprioritize your own well-being over those around you, which ironically means that one of our deepest needs, the need for others, goes unmet. We also live in a, in a society that just doesn't have a really high view of commitment. We move more. We change suburbs, we change cities, we change careers that years ago you'd kind of live in one place and do one job your whole life, and in that context you could have the kind of slow, deep-formed relationships that take time to come about. And so th those factors, and probably a whole bunch more you could think of, are some of the kind of contributing factors to this loneliness epidemic. But the Christian worldview actually lays out a, a slightly different answer, or maybe a way to think of it would be an, uh, an answer that, that underlines all of these, a root cause beneath everything else, which cuts to the absolute heart of the human condition. And it's this, that sin has alienated us from God and, in, and indirectly has alienated us from others. So I just want to unpack this, kind of, this claim of the Christian worldview for you right now. Relationships are core to what it means to be human. We were made as relational beings. The Bible begins with a picture of how the world was meant to be, and, and the picture that it gives us is in the story of Adam and Eve, which is one of the few parts of the Bible that may be familiar to you if you're someone who doesn't normally go to church or hasn't read the Bible for yourself. We kind of, kind of, everyone's got a bit of an idea of, of this story. And it begins with Adam and Eve in this perfect garden, enjoying life and communion with the God who made them, walking freely in the garden alongside God, naked, with no shame and no barrier between them and God or them and each other. That's what perfection looks like. And when you read a story like this, it's very easy to quickly just get caught up in the practicals, things like well, does, you know, God walking in the garden, does that mean God had a physical body? 
how did Adam and Eve come about? Did they have belly buttons? Or even the question, did this even happen? And some of those questions are worth diving into at different points, but to focus on those questions alone would lead us to miss the main point of what the Bible's trying to say at the very, very beginning, which is this, that the world as it was made to be has humankind and God in relationship with one another, in perfect harmony. And it has people being able to relate to one another in perfect trust and love and mutual giving of knowledge. And the fact that this is not what life is like now, this is not the world we see around us, this is not our experience, is the result of something not being right. And the reason the Bible gives for things not being right is sin. In that Adam and Eve story, humankind rebelled. They chose independence, autonomy, and self-reliance over trusting in God. And the consequence of this is that they are cast out into the world that we find ourselves in now, a world in which God is distant, foreign and unknowable, and where all of our relationships are tainted in some measure by fear and shame and having to hide certain parts of ourselves. So the fundamental issue here is the gap that we find between us and God, and the gap that we find between us and God is fundamentally a relational one. The core of our deepest need is relational breakdown. I think we can often tend to think that you know, our distance from God is more kind of spatial, that he's kind of out there somewhere and we're down here and that's why we've, we can't really sense him or know what's going on. But I think a, a more helpful way to think about it is through the lens of a spoiled relationship. I'm guessing pretty much everyone in this room at some point in your life has had a good relationship turned sour. And if you're one of the few that hasn't, you can come and tell me how you've managed that so far. I'd love to hear it. But, but most of us know what it's like to have a friendship go south or to be through a breakup, or to have a friend break up with their partner who is also your friend and so now their ex becomes your ex, or you have a falling out with a co-worker. And, it, and it's, a just, it's an uncomfortable thing to have a relationship go bad like that, and the wall that immediately goes up in that moment. And often that makes itself known when a month or two later you're walking down the street, having a great time, sunny day like this, ice latte in hand, when you look up and you notice about 20 meters in front of you, that person is walking towards you. And in an instant, your body's filled with stress. I hope I'm not alone in this kind of scenario. And you look for an escape route. Would it be weird to cross the road here? There's no pedestrian crossing. Maybe I'll get hit by a car and that will solve it anyway. Or you think, am I wearing sunglasses? Am I hope I'm wearing sunglasses? Because if I am, they might not have seen that I've seen them. And you go through this process and it's just this uncomfortable thing and then you end up doing the nod of the head or you mutually pretend you didn't see each other. But for the rest of the day, you're left with this feeling of grossness, like something has gone wrong. Something was good, and now there's this barrier, and, it, and it's not a nice feeling to have. And what the Bible's saying is that each and every one of us is carrying around with us, even if we don't know it, a good relationship that's turned sour, something that we're missing, something that we're not feeling quite right about. And so the story of the Bible and the story of our lives is us trying to figure out how do we get things back to how they're meant to be? And for many people, at some point in their life, they do hit this realization that the thing that they are looking for deep down, the thing that they really feel that they need, is a void that is bigger than can be filled by any other person. That we're all on some level lonely for God. And that's part of many people's stories of becoming Christians. St. Augustine, who uh, lived in the 300s and who at the time presumably wasn't known as St. Augustine, probably just Augustine or maybe Augie, I don't really know kind of how it worked back then. But anyway, he was an ordinary young man 
take the saint off it. And, and one of the kind of defining marks of his life was that he was a womanizer. He was known for his promiscuity, bordering on potentially, in these days you might call, even call it a sexual addiction. If he was alive today, uh, he would have been the guy you'd see on the bus looking out the window and just indiscriminately swiping on Tinder to kind of up his chances of getting any kind of match. And his conversion to Christianity and coming to know God began with coming to terms with the fact that he felt an emptiness that was actually getting worse rather than better, despite how many people he connected with. He wrote in his confessions, The greater I got in age, the worse I got in emptiness, as I could not conceive of any substance except the kind I saw with these eyes. And this emptiness led him to start looking for answers. And what Augustine came to realize in his life was the same thing that the Scottish writer Bruce Marshall summed up when he said, the man who rings at the bell at the brothel is unconsciously looking for God. He realized what he was looking for wasn't to be found in another person primarily, but he was missing something deeper. And it led him to cry out in, in, a, in a famous prayer, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. He realized that there is a God-shaped hole in all of us. And that sounds really cliche, but it's true. And until we have that particular need that we have for, the connect, for connection with the God who made us met, then no marriage, no sexual partner, no community, no friend will be able to fill that void. Because it is not a void primarily of human disconnection, but of disconnection with God. And so the Bible has a remedy for this deep loneliness. And it's, and it's a remedy that solves this, this broken connection with God, but then through that actually enables us to have deeper and richer connections with others as well. And I think one of the places in the Bible we see this most clearly is in the passage that Felicity just read out. So let's just read through that again and we'll leave it up there and, and, and draw out a few things from it. Look at these verses with me. 1 John 4, 7 says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. It's a really dense few verses and it says a lot. And what it says a lot about is love. You probably just noticed that the word love is in there. I didn't even bother counting them, but a whole lot. Because love is the ultimate answer to what we deeply need in our loneliness. And it makes a really major statement in verse 8 that God is love. Now we tend, I think, to often just think of God as this distant, out there kind of being that we can maybe know, maybe not. But I wonder if you did a word association with God, would the first thing that came to your mind be love? Or would it be distant or hidden? John is wanting us to see, above all, that the way to think about God is that of love. So in verse 9 he says, this is how God showed his love among us. And I think what John's trying to do in this writing is to show that love, love can be an empty word. Often the word love doesn't necessarily mean anything on its own. A person having an affair can say, I love you, 
but with their actions be saying something completely different. A friend can say, I love you, but they could still maybe be someone who never bothers to text, never bothers to make an effort, never bothers to call. But love, when it's real, is demonstrated. There's something you can often point to and say, well, this is how I know it. And typically, it's costly. If I bring my wife home flowers, which I don't do often enough because she's a florist, and so that's stressful. It's kind of like making a meal for a chef. You kind of know they're going to judge it. But let's say, I, let's say I do it on one of the few times that I do. And so she's surprised, and she's happy, and so she has a big smile on her face, and she says, like, thank you, that's, that's so thoughtful. And if I then say, oh, don't worry about it. Someone left them on the bus, and I just found them. Suddenly that smile goes away, isn't it? Because it's not so much the flowers, it's about the cost. Accidentally found flowers are not the same as going out and spending hard-earned money on something that's just going to die in a few days anyway. That's why I think flowers are so... She's, you want some flowers? Go talk to my wife. She, she'll love to provide you some. But they're, they're, they're showing that you're willing to, just, just to extravagantly spend on someone. That's what it communicates. That's why flowers work. That's why there's this kind of image of love. And I guess they're pretty and stuff as well. I don't really know how flowers work. But, um, but love, when it's real has a cost attached to it. And I think you'd be, you'd, we just know this instinctively. As we think of the times we felt the most loved, it's probably through a generous gift or someone giving up time to help you with something. Or in your darkest moment, just having someone just sit alongside you and being with you. But love has a cost. And so John is trying to make, she, make clear here that he's not just throwing around empty language. That he's saying that love is demonstrated. And this is what he says. He says, he sent his one and only son into this world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. God's love for us is the costliest of loves. He loved us so much that he sent his son to the world to die in our place. This is the center point of the Christian message that God loved us so much that he gave his own life that we might live. And he did this knowing everything about us knowing how undeserving we are, knowing how broken we are, that we might know him. And this is the first and, and primary remedy for this deep loneliness that we find ourselves feeling. It's the feeling, the feeling we have that says nobody cares, nobody loves me, even when that feeling is present, is shown by what John says here to not be true. We are known. We are loved, we are cared for, and we've all been shown that love in Jesus. That we might know God. And this is what our hearts yearn for. To connect with a reality that is greater than ourselves and to be accepted. It's the subconscious longing that we all have deep down. And for some of us, maybe it's not even a subconscious longing. For some of us, it may be the case that you are here today because you are acutely aware that you are missing something that you need something more than what you've been able to find so far, and that you're wanting to connect with God. Maybe you, you used to feel connected to God on some level, but for whatever reason, now you don't. That's for something in the past, and you're wanting to rekindle that sense of connection. Or maybe your whole life you've just wanted, is there a God out there that I can know and know intimately? And so the invitation today is that God wants you to know how much he loves you. He wants you to be able to experience that love on a personal, tangible level, to be able to delve into him, to cry out to him if he does in fact feel distant, and to have the reality of his pursuing costly love to reframe your view of yourself as someone who is intimately known, loved, and wanted. 
That's a journey that we want to help you along with. If that is something that you want to, if that's a road you want to go down, something you want to explore, like Felicity said, Alpha is the place. We'd love to get you along there. We'd love to be able to sit alongside you and, and, and discuss this and ask questions with you. So we'd love you to get in touch if that's something you're looking for. That's only kind of one piece of the puzzle. As, as I said before, we've got this vertical disconnection with us and God, and also sin has brought about a horizontal disconnection. And while getting to know God is the deepest part of this remedy, it's not the only part of it. Because God is concerned not just that we would know him, but that we would know others. And I think sometimes Christians, maybe in particular, can have a misunderstanding that if we know God and really get how much he loves us, we should never feel lonely. But there's something actually pretty problematic about that idea. And I think it's problematic for a couple of reasons. If you believe that that's the case, that if you know God, you should never feel loneliness, it means that when you do feel lonely, on top of loneliness itself not feeling good, you're going to have a layer of guilt put on there as well. Because it means that you're somehow not, you're failing. You're not enjoying God enough. You're not getting what you should get out of him. And so you feel bad that you're feeling lonely because you think you shouldn't. But it's also problematic because it downplays our genuine need for human connection. The fact that we feel lonely when we're lacking in meaningful connection with other people isn't because we're failing, but it's because that's how we were made. We were made to connect with others. And we, can, we can't thrive without human connection any more than we can thrive without food or water or oxygen. And feeling guilty for being lonely when you are, in fact, lonely, biblically speaking, makes as much sense as feeling guilty for getting hungry each day because Jesus said, we can't live on bread alone. So just as we can't substitute our relationship with God for, with, with human relationships, that there's a particular need that only God can fill, there's actually a particular need that only relationships with others can fill as well. Knowing God doesn't remove our need for human connection, but on the contrary, knowing God motivates us to connect with and love those around us. Look at how that, these verses in, in, in John's letter end. He says, Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. There's a lot of interest in these two lines. Big ideas. But fundamentally, what we're trying to say is that understanding God's love for us and his costly pursuit of us in our state of alienation should push us to do likewise. It's natural for someone who has been shown love to, to go and seek to show others love. And more than that, what it says in verse 12 is that if we do this, this is how we experience God. If we love one another, there is a sense that that is how we know that God is active and working and living in us. And it even says that in this, God's love is made complete in us. That is the final purpose of God loving us isn't that we would be kind of like a reservoir or a dam where we're the kind of end product just receiving love, but we'd rather be more like a river, having that love flow through us and out into other people as well. That's what it means when it says God is made God's love is made complete when we love one another. So it isn't an overreach to say that the gospel is the remedy for our loneliness because it addresses these both dimensions that we have to, to, to know God but also have a means of connecting with and knowing and loving others. And the primary way this plays itself out amongst people who know Jesus is through the reality of the church. 
in order to, to have people come to know him and to continue to know him after um, you know, 2,000 years after Jesus left this earth, he didn't build a building. He didn't um, create a brand. He didn't even write a book. What Jesus did primarily was to form a community. He began 2,000 years ago a multi-racial, multi-generational, multi-class, multi-status, multicultural, multi-educated community that was radically committed to love and inclusion. And to love both those in, the, in that community and as well those outside of it. And that community, whatever you make of Christianity, has been spreading and multiplying and growing for 2,000 years as more and more people are connected through it to this love that God has to offer. And so I can honestly say my experience in the church, my discovery of the church community has been, from an earthly perspective, I guess, the most amazing blessing that I've found that comes alongside knowing Jesus. When I first became a Christian, loneliness had been a, a recurring reality in my life. I had lots of insecurities. I had this sense that, that I was, because I was introverted, that no one could ever really know me, that people wouldn't really love me if they knew the real me. And in the church, I found two things that I personally had never found concretely anywhere before. And the first of those things is acceptance. The church is an accepting place because the way we come to Jesus is not in putting up a front. It's not having to be something that we're not. It's not having to be impressive. It's not having to be a certain type of person. But Jesus loves us as we are. That's what his grace means, that he looks at us and says, I, I welcome you and I accept you, not because of what you do, but because of what I do. And that mentality plays into the church and how we view each other. That we wouldn't just accept a certain type of people, but just to, just to know that there is an unconditional love to be found in the church community. So I found acceptance. The other thing I found was this sense of a shared purpose. That to have deep connections, to have deep relationships, you need to be on about something together, something in common. And what the church offers is, is a commonality that goes deeper than just people of the same personality or people of the same interest or people of the same skill set. It's something big enough to bind all people together and that purpose is to go into the world with the same love that we've received and to pass it on. To help others discover this same costly sacrificial love that Jesus has shown. And to help people fulfill their deepest need, which is to have their hearts at rest in God. And I know today that many people are disillusioned with the church. And that's not without reason. There's plenty of reasons I think you can find to be a little bit disillusioned with the church. And maybe you're even feeling today, look, well, I'm still lonely and I've tried the church and it hasn't helped. And if that's how you're feeling today, I just want to say that I'm sorry. I'm sorry if you've in your life felt that the church hasn't been the accepting place that it should or hasn't been the loving place that it should or hasn't been the inclusive place that it should because it's meant to be those things and sometimes it falls short. But as hard as it might feel, my invitation to you would be to say, can you help, can you help us make it better? Can you help us be a community that helps others who might be feeling disconnected from God and from other people find a place to call home? That's what we want City Light to be. And sometimes the hardest thing can be trying to meet the needs of other people before our own needs are met. That's not an easy thing to do. But sometimes that's what it takes to start building a genuine and loving community. And I think investing in it is worth it. Because as flawed as the church is and as much as it often misses the mark, 
And as much as the fact that the church is made up of sinful, selfish people, the ambition that the church has, I think, is the greatest ambition in the world. It's the ambition for every single person on this planet to know and experience the greatest love they could ever know. In a world of social poverty, we hold the answer. We have something this lonely world needs. Vivek Murthy, the, the Surgeon General I quoted before, said this about his practice as a doctor and why he's turned to be focusing on loneliness. He says, There is nothing more powerful than love in its ability to heal. There is nothing I've written a prescription for that can eclipse what love can do in the face of extraordinary injury, trauma, and pain. Those who know the gospel have the greatest love that could ever be known, the greatest love that could ever be experienced. And this is what we have as a church to offer to this world, this city around us. We've got something to offer, but I think often as Christians we can look out at our city like, like someone looking at, it, looking out at a sea of sick people with a, with a solution in our pocket, but being too embarrassed to offer it. The gospel is the remedy for loneliness. In Jesus, we can know the God who made us and find our rest in him. And in the community that he's built, that is growing, that is bringing more and more people in, there, there can be and there should be a space for acceptance and love and connection like we've never known. So I'm just going to be praying that God would be, be doing this in our, in our context, in our community, that people would be coming to know him. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you that you are a God of love. And for anyone who is in this room who right now is just feeling that horrible pain of loneliness, who is feeling unloved, unknown, uncared for, we ask that you would be helping them see the reality that is set in stone that you do love them, that you care for them, that you know exactly what they're thinking and that you know exactly what they're feeling and that they are not alone and that they never will be. We ask that you would make us all aware of that reality. But Lord, as well, we, we long to be a community that sees no one in our midst feeling lonely. We want to love people. We want you to help us love one another to overcome the inward-looking, the selfish natures that we have, to grow as a community of deep love, of accepting people as you accept them, of caring for people as you care for them. And so we just ask that you be doing this. We know that it's going to require your work in us to be this kind of community, and we ask you be doing that. In Jesus' name, amen.